I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Hello, and welcome back to For Your Ears Only. This is the Optimism Vaccine premiere James Bond podcast. I'm your host, Jake Tropila, joined as always by my co-host, Jack Eason. Jack, how are you doing this episode? Pretty good. Uh, staying indoors, doing being responsible civilian in this pandemic, all that good stuff. I know. Social distancing, can't really go anywhere. Uh... Yeah, state of the world is uh, very unusual at this time. Um, so much so that uh, the next Bond film, No Time to Die, which was slated to be released next week at the time of this record, has been pushed back till April 2021. So we'll see if that holds true. Um, but yeah, as we have it, this is episode 0026, and we have made it. These are all Bond films that are officially out. And uh, Jack, how do you feel about the quest that we've we've done on this this three-year journey it's been a lot of fun has it been three years jesus um it has well, been. we yes. did come, we did kind of slow down towards the end when everything else slowed down we're like well we don't even know when the next movie's coming out i mean at this point april 2021 is uh perhaps even more fantastical some bonds escapes we'll see what yeah. happens with that but yeah no it's it's been really fun and this is something i always intended to do uh was watch all the bond movies i don't know why i hadn't i'd seen most of them before but like the craig year i just never made time for them so this yeah. has been this has been good filling in some gaps, getting in, learning who Sam Smith is. Okay, I, I still don't know who he is. Um, <laughs> you know, it's been it's been informative. Excellent. I'm happy to hear that you can now say that you're an expert at Bond, which is uh, my mission this whole time. But uh, yeah, so we have a very uh, special episode, and to celebrate, we've brought on a special guest. Uh, this guest uh, has appeared on the Optimism Vaccine podcast before. He is a freelance film writer. He's a jack of all trades, and he's a bona fide Englishman. Please welcome Alistair Ryder. Alistair, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I can, yeah, I can confirm I am very much a bona fide, a verified uh, Englishman. I've got a blue Ooh. tick next to my name on the sort of the English verification scale. So, yeah. What color is your passport? <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, not yet blue. It's still it's still an EU passport. Oh god, so they I haven't yeah they haven't fixed that yet. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you guys are talking about. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I have a blue passport. But um, yeah, Alistair, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is you know it's 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 a shame that it's taken us twenty six episodes to get somebody who's actually from England on the podcast. But uh, I'm happy to say that we finally did it. Better late than never. Yeah. You're going out on a high. Yeah, Daniel Craig wouldn't answer the calls, so you know, it's true. Who went with the next <laughs> yeah. best thing, Alistair? Yeah, what's he? Yeah. What's he got to do? This is free publicity for his next film. But uh, yeah, anyways, he may have blocked me. But uh, yeah, Alistair. <laughs> so thank you very much. Welcome to the pod. Um, we do this with all of our guests. I wanted to, uh, you especially. I wanted to hear um, what is your uh, what is your history with uh, the James Bond franchise? Was it a is it as big over there as I imagined it was? Were you a fan growing up? What tell us all about your history with Bond? Oh, definitely, it's it, it's massive over here, but it is one of those things that's so omnipresent in pop culture. I I, I feel like I've sort of lived vicariously without in you know, seeing 
uh, many of the films I've but I've ex- I pretty much know many of them shot for shot, even if I've only seen them in the background on ITV on a Saturday afternoon. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a strange one. I think I've had the opposite relationship to Jack with this franchise and the fact that the only Bond who I've seen all, you know, the entirety of, not, in, not counting George Lazenby, of course, is the Daniel Craig era. Like, hmm. before then, I've just, you know, I've seen most of Sean Connery's films. I've seen a couple of the Roger Moore films, but okay. mostly, yeah, I, ha- I haven't uh, sat down and, you know, binged the whole franchise in the same way, but at the same time, because of how famous many of those films are over here and how often they're repeated on TV, I, I feel like I've seen the entire thing, and it's, yeah, it's a very rare thing in pop culture for something to be that omnipresent, uh, especially over here. So, yeah, it is as big as you assume it would be. Um, But also on this side of the Atlantic, there is also the sort of person who defines their entire personality by having never seen a James Bond film in the same way that I imagine, you know, there are people out Mm. there whose entire personalities are just, oh, I've never seen Star Wars. (laughs) But I, you know, I'm not one of these cool people. One day I will sit down and properly um, watch all of the Bond films outside of the Craig era. Um, but I'm not sure that they can uh, they can top these four films. Well, probably Quantum of Solace, but the other three, pretty pretty solid. Pretty good stuff, yeah. Do you have a, uh, a runaway pick for favourite Bond film? I mean, as I say, my, uh, my tastes are not uh, very academic in, in this regard. Um, I haven't, you know, I haven't, I'm not a Bond scholar, so <laughs> it will probably just be Casino Royale. Uh, I mean, before we were discussing, you know, this me being on this episode, I did previously say that Spectre was my favourite. Um, yeah. But but in this rewatch, I think that it's a very close second, but I don't know, there's something about the, the just the visceral action thrills of Casino Royale that just works in a way that Spectre doesn't. Spectre's far more plotty of a film and uh, Casino Royale just cuts to the chase and sort of reinvents the franchise in a way that I think is pretty much needed. Yeah, as as far as reboots go, it's it's stupendous. And um, but uh, yeah, your your initial reaction to uh, Spectre when you said that it was your favorite of the Craig era that was I, I was you know surprised to hear that. Now also that's why I'm happy to have you on. And uh, and Jack, you had just seen this film for the first time yesterday, and I think. Uh, you had a similar reaction. What are yeah. your What are your initial thoughts on Spectre? Yeah, I, I'd I'd never realized it was a hot take when I came on. It's like I think this might be my favorite of the Daniel Craig era films, and I would agree. I think it's up against Casino Royale as the the main the main competition, and I you know I'm maybe I have to watch them both again to to weigh them up. Um, this is um. Yeah, I, I just really enjoyed Spectre. I joked previously before when we started, I was like, "This is two and a half hours long. I already hate it." And um, but honestly, <laughs> it was it was a pretty pretty enjoyable two and a half hours. And this one really, I don't, this one really captures a kind of a good balance of obviously being in sway to the classic Bond mode. This one has a very lays in very convincingly to its world hopping feel and the train fight and stuff makes this very much feels like kind yeah. of a rejuvenation of From Russia with Love. Um, which is maybe, you know, the Bond film. And uh, as boring as it might be, I might claim, honestly, maybe it's just the best Bond movie out of all of them. Um, 
But yeah, it, it's just got this great... Uh, I, I was joking, I'm probably just going to keep using the word languorous to describe this film. It's kind of not rushed and not hurried, um, but sort of pleasantly put together. It has that great kind of Sunday afternoon movie feel to me. Um, it looks very reassuringly expensive. It clips along pretty well. It's got a couple of really good set pieces. So yeah, I mean, I'm honestly, yeah. I'm all aboard this, the the uh, Spectre train. I think all of the, the Craig era movies get a little bit inside their heads sometimes, except for Quantum of Solace, which I think just didn't get anywhere. Um, but this one kind of balances it out pretty well. So it's, I think it's weighing up against kind of the, the fresh brusqueness of Casino Royale versus this one where they kind of have finally slotted into like this is bond and kind of like almost rebuilt the franchise so they could get back to where connery started you know where it was a whole new thing um yeah so i i was really impressed with it i was kind of surprised when i said i really like this they have a bunch of several people be like what the fuck is wrong with you <laughs> so um yeah who, who knows uh we'll we'll talk it out i guess yeah it's interesting. So yeah, I vivid, I you know vividly remember this coming out. This is now five years ago. Uh, this was released in 2015, um, and uh, I had written or not written. I had read a bunch of reviews before I saw it. There was a lot of people expressing disappointment with the movie, and some people just kind of outright hating it for some uh, narrative twists that happen, which we'll definitely cover. Um, but when I saw it the first time, I was like think my takeaway was that i really enjoyed it it was a lot of fun and maybe some parts of it i liked more than skyfall um and then when i went back to the theater and saw it again a couple weeks later you know its flaws were more apparent but i still couldn't bring myself to label it a bad movie um i think that there's a lot of stuff i thought that there's a lot of stuff that i still enjoyed about it and um now watching it again uh five years later i like just kind of divorced from the reviews and the how everyone was you know taking it and just watching it as its own bond film this is like the one daniel craig film that follows the formula the strictest because the other ones have sort of played with that convention a bit but i gotta say i had a really good time uh revisiting specter and i think i might like it more than skyfall um but uh but we'll get into it we'll get into it i mean that's that's just my uh initial reactions as i as I was enjoying it. Join but, us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Um, you know, I, there's still definitely some flaws, but you know, it's, it's at this point, it's kind of like no more than how, like some of my favorite Roger Moore films have flaws or even, you know, my, the Dalton films have a few blips that they hit. So, um, but yeah. All right. Well, Spectre, let's uh, get into it. Uh, 2015 directed by Sam Mendes returning after a triumph with Skyfall. Uh, we open with a gun barrel, which has not yet happened in the Craig era. Um, I'm a little annoyed at this gun barrel, I gotta say, because you can kind of see the gun in Bond's hand. I like when the other Bonds keep it hidden. I don't know if you guys noticed that. The gun is plainly visible, but um, yeah, that's just uh, me. That, yeah, yeah, no, it's the first time watching. That didn't really catch that. But, you know, I mean, not we kind of know Bond is uh, currently, spoiler alert, like Bond has killed like 400 people now. So we, we know he's... <laughs> He's, he's prone to acts of violence. That's true. And you got to kind of, I mean, I, I don't know how accurate your uh, your death count will be at the end because uh, I'm pretty sure he blows up like 400 Spectre nerds in their underground computer lair. But um, yeah, he. Uh, so we open with, uh, it's the Day of the Dead celebration in Mexico City. Uh, Bond is dressed up in a skull suit. We get this great one 
shot of him following a guy through this hotel onto the roof into the building next door. Um, Jack, what are your thoughts on the uh, the one take? This is, I mean, it's a kind of a barnstormer opening, um, and the whole pre-credit sequence here, which I feel has been like growing with each Craig film, is I think it's about seventeen minutes long until they like hit the the opening credits or so, somewhere in that vicinity. And this is, yeah, this is, um, I think, three yeah. major shots strung together, and right. very impressive. It, and it, it, again, a, a, the classic Bond feel. I feel like. It's something of a selective thing, but I feel like the Connery and Moore era was absolutely defined by uh, kind of equatorial parades and, and, and Bond wandering through them. That seemed to be just a major thing in all those films and Live and Let Die and others where he would go down to like Jamaica or Haiti or, or South America mm-hmm. and he'd be in a, you know, some kind of a big parade. They was like, it's all they did uh, down south of the border was just going parades. So it it feels very um like almost coming home as kind of an image to to have Bond immediately ensconced in this this big celebration parade and of course he has his own mission within that um just kind of at this stage the one take is not uh you know with technology it's become a much more feasible uh tool for filmmakers to use it still has a little bit of bravura to it it's still kind of like it's still impressive you know your brain kind of clocks it as this uninterrupted motion um. And yeah, I think I think this is a really great pre-credit sequence because it's just got that kind of local flavor. It's got that little intrigue. We're not quite sure what he's doing, um, and then the scale that emerges from it. Normally, in a one take, if they're trying to keep everything together, things you know, it's kind of minute. It's it's all about like the the immediate tensions of the actors and the interplay and the timing. And this thing ends with like just a whole building falling over, which is uh you know, it kind of amps up the scale very, very convincingly. So I, I would count this one as a win. This is a, a barnstorming way to open up a movie. Fabulous. Uh, Alistair, any uh, initial thoughts on the, the one take or the sequence that follows? Yeah, I mean, it is probably the best uh, opening sequence of the uh, the Craig Gaber Bond films, but mm. it is it did lead to an evil, and that was Sam Mendes getting the one take bug and deciding to probably do 1917 after getting a flavor for it here. We have to oh acknowledge God. this. You're yeah. right. So, you know, even even the the best most exciting sequence in this film, it it did lead to a uh, to something that we would just much rather forget. Um but yeah. but, in ter- but elsewhere this scene, I think what it does quite well is that these Daniel Craig movies are obviously a far grittier reinvention of Bond, quote unquote gritty. Um, and this has like a lot of humor to it in terms of how the ac- action is staged, which I don't think it's given enough credit for. And we'll talk about like the building collapsing and him falling onto the chair. There's just him being introduced wearing this, you know, this fancy dress costume in the in the way you know, many of the older Bond films would have him in disguises more often. Um, it does, yeah, there is a sort of visual humour to it that I, I think works because it treads very lightly and it doesn't distract from the the general sort of tension that it's building. I think it's very complimentary. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point you made about the uh, the sofa, uh, him landing on the, the little couch there. Um, I think that's a great bit. And I think, uh, yeah, the, Daniel Craig is like, 
I mean, people kind of write him off as serious sometimes, but he's actually very playful uh, in a lot of this movie. Like another scene that stands out, jumping ahead a bit, is when he's at the uh, the Skiara funeral and the goons are just kind of watching him from like the sidelines and he like just stops and waves at them. Um, I, you know, I just I love little bits like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, Bond blows up a building and, uh, he gives chase to this, uh, this Spectre agent. As we later find, uh, they run through the crowds, they get into a helicopter, they're fighting in the helicopter and the helicopter is doing all these sorts of like crazy curly cues in the sky. Um, I think, uh, I think a lot of this really looks great, especially because a lot of it looks like they practically shot it above an actual live crowd of people. Um, I'm always in the mood for real danger in the Bond films <laughs> if it means that uh, real lives are at stake. Um, but uh, yeah, I, th- I think this is a, this is a great opening sequence. Um, I, uh, I, I would probably yeah, have to say I don't think it's my favorite because I think Casino Royale does just such a fabulous job of um, it's mostly just two guys talking with an intercut with a, some brief close quarters fighting in a bathroom stall. But and I think that just kind of does a great job of reintroducing yourself to the character in the franchise. But like, as far as thrusting Bond into the middle of a mission, just in media res, I think this works better than um, definitely like with the fast cutting of Quantum of Solace. You know, this is just such a more take its time. You get to see all the action. It's got a very classical feel, as Jack said. But uh, yeah, I, I, I would chalk up this title sequence to a win. Do um, you have any other thoughts on the, uh, the, the, the pre-title sequence? Anyone? Jack? I don't know. I'll just say Quantum of Solace, the pre-title sequence, is probably the best thing in it. So this is better. So there that's, you go. That's Good true. start. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to like rewatch all of the Craig Era Bond films, like leading up to knowing that I was going to rewatch this, and just the thought of having to sit through Quantum of Solace again um, just put me off doing it. Um, I g- genuinely cannot remember what the pre-title sequence in Quantum of Solace is. It's just a car chase and some shooting. It's it's like it's yeah. not, but it's a solid action sequence. But that's about it. Yeah, it's very it's very hyperactive. Um, I think that's uh, a lot of people when they discuss their least favorite Craigs, they usually cite this one or Quantum of Solace. Um, this one blows Quantum out of the water on all fronts. Um, Quantum is just too. Like, it's just butchered in editing, and there's a lot of flaws that come from it being, uh, like, kind of constantly rewritten on the fly because of the writer's strike. You know, this is definitely a film that, like Jack said, it looks expensive. It, they took their time just kind of producing the hell out of it. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's just got a very rich feel to it. Um, but yeah, after uh, the opening title sequence, or the pre-title sequence, uh, Bond kills the assassin. He steals his ring, which has an octopus on it, and as we zoom into it, we hear this.
Yeah, so this is uh, Spectre, or excuse me, The Writings on the Wall by Sam Smith, one of the rare titles that does not share the title of the film in the song. Uh, Jack, you don't know who uh, Sam Smith is. Uh, Alistair, are you more familiar? He's a hobbush, right? <laughs> that's that's why you're Sam Smith, and I was like, he's a hobbush. <laughs> um, yeah, yes, I am f- familiar uh, with, with this person and their bland music, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but what what should we should point out is the fact that Radiohead were originally the ones approached to do the theme for this film, and their theme song for this is out in the ether, and you can listen to it. Um, it's yeah, it doesn't feel like it would fit as well, but it's certainly a more interesting song. And it's just up there with the Johnny Cash Thunderball alternate version. That that's floating out there. I didn't realize that. Yeah, this this song, um, this song pisses me off uh, on my brain primarily because <laughs> uh, the rhyming scheme is all uh, of the writing on the wall, and then all I think next is Skyfall, and but it's not. It's another preview. They should have chosen a different rhyming structure. Also, this sounds like a Eurovision song. Like straight up, this is this absolutely could be entered by the UK into the Eurovision, it would get zero points, and that would be the end of it. <laughs> As God intended. Yeah, we're not allowed to score above 12 points. In no, total. no, absolutely not. It's understood. I'm really none of the major, and the, the, the five uh, major countries that are always in the Eurovision, they get automatic qualification. Like France and England in particular, are not allowed to do well, and that's understood <laughs> by all of Europe. And that's a beautiful thing, I think. It unites us all. Germany won like 10 years ago, but I think that was just like a sort of secret understanding that one of the five countries should be allowed to just have this one win if they're putting all this money into it. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, every so often you have your your variation. I mean, Britain has done well here and there, but like, honestly, it's Eastern Europe and Sweden and Ireland still hold the record somehow, but they're not going to win it again. They don't they don't understand the, the secret. They're trying, but they won't get it. Anyhow, Jake, as I'm sure you're a Eurovision fan too. Um, if if you want more more uh, in this, just watch the Will Ferrell Eurovision song contest movie, and honestly, hear the music in that, which is a pretty good approximation of actual Eurovision music. This thing is the exact same. Like, frankly, this is from my count, and I don't know who Sam Smith is. I'm sure he's very famous and he's very good, and he's not that redhead guy named Ed who's also very famous. I'm led to believe. Um, I don't really keep up with these things. It's apparently very obvious from this. Um, But this is just a tremendously bland 
theme song to me. I just, I can't remember anything about it, except literally, it may, it's so bland, the only thing I can remember about it is another song uh, by another person. So that's probably not a great start for it. I mean, one of the reasons this song is memorable to me is just because I was working at a cinema at the time. Yeah. And... You know, leading up to the film's release, we all had to, like, wear tuxedos and things to work. Even if we're just, you know, scraping popcorn into a barrel, we had to wear tuxedos and everything. Did they provide uh, the tuxedos? I'm hoping you didn't have um, a red one. For, for some of... Some people managed to get them rented, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. When it was, like, the week leading up to release, a CD was burned with all of the Bond songs in it. And yeah, this just got burned into my brain before it came out. So even though I recognize that it is a very bland song that is largely a carbon copy of the Adele song, but with a more of a Eurovision flavor, it is like memorable to me because it was forced into my brain for such a significant period of time sure that's like later in this movie where they're just drilling holes in bond's head i mean i, I can understand that's <laughs> just what's gonna happen i'm gonna go because i'm pretty sure this is a wildly hot take but i am going to say that the best theme tune of the craig era is quantum of solace it's the only thing it has is that jack white alicia keys thing which maybe isn't a great bond theme tune but it's probably the only one of these songs i'd actually listen to otherwise uh that's probably a scorching hot take but whatever, I don't care. So that's that's my take on it. Yeah, well, uh, if I were to stay in character as I have in this podcast, uh, I've always uh, I, I I like this song. Um, I've uh, not necessarily been a defender of it, but uh, I, it has never really offended me. Um, I think it makes for easy listening. Um, but my lack of Eurovision knowledge uh, probably has something to do with that. Um, and I haven't seen the Eurovision movie either, so I might uh, change that soon. But um, um, yeah, I uh, should should also point out this song uh, won best original song at the Oscars, and Sam Smith said that he was the first uh, gay person to win an Oscar, and then was yeah. like mercilessly had the piss ripped out of them because oh my god, how did I miss this? That's insane! Yeah, yeah. so many people, and it was like I think one of the most purest real life accidental Alan Partridge moments when somebody like said oh no the first person was this songwriter for disney who you know won an oscar in the late 80s and he was like oh well maybe i should meet up with them for a date and the interviewer was like uh he died of aids in 1992 <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. man that's amazing yeah. uh i didn't know yeah. this so uh, didn't skyfall win as well did they do yeah uh, yeah yeah but that's oh. a more deserving win well yeah, i'm that's, sure that's a good song <laughs> yeah yeah no I, can, I mean that's absolutely classic but like that uh skyfall is I, i'm not a huge fan of the song but it's like it's classic bond sound this one just it feels like supermarket bond to me yeah, yeah. i think the billy eilish song for the next film gets back to that classic Bond sound, which might be a hot take, I don't know, but I really like that song. I, I recall that one actually being pretty good, I actually, I've listened to that, it's maybe the first of the, the Craigier ones where I'm actually, I've listened to a song ahead of time, and yeah, that, that didn't bother me at all, so we'll see how it slots in, in the mood of whatever they get up to, how they're going to trump this one for pre-credit sequence, we'll see, but so it goes. I, I mean... And plus, she's had like a whole year's worth of promo for that single, you know. That's yeah, just yeah, accidentally. Yeah. And they 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 pegged her for the next uh, song before she won four Grammys this year. So it's it like really striking before the iron is hot. It worked out for them. 
And was was she even alive when Pierce Brosnan was bombed? I, I feel like that. I don't even want to do the math on that. She probably was just barely alive for like the last of his films. I believe she was not yet one years old when Die, Die Another Day came out. Yep, she yeah. was born after 9-11, I believe. Right, yeah, yeah that sounds about true. right. She's like 18 or 19, but... Um, yeah, so uh, that was our uh, our lengthy discussion on Sam Smith. Uh, the only other thing I remember uh, <laughs> that uh, it did, yeah, it did win the Oscar. So this is our first consecutive Bond song Oscar win, which is incredible. Um, but uh, one one joke I remember at the Oscars is that after he performed "Writings on the Wall," there was applause, and he walked off stage. And then Chris Rock, the host, came up onto the stage and he pointed at him and he said, "Hey, hey, my favorite song is Father Figure," because I guess he kind of looks like George Michael, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that was just funny. Um, but all right, so uh, back into the action. Uh, Bond is at M's office. M is uh, obviously very mad that Bond went to Mexico unannounced and blew up a city block. Um, Bond was just saying that he's uh, chasing a lead. This is where we're introduced to a character named Max Denby, who's also known as C. He's the head of the uh, Joint Security Service, and he's leading this uh, merger between MI5 and MI6. Basically, he's introducing what is one of the uh, the villainous subplots of the film is this uh it's basically the patriot act where uh this program called nine eyes is combining the nine intelligence services of nine countries for all the other countries to have access to um didn't really get it much on my first watch what this is all about um and i don't think that you know it's the most it's timely and topical to be sure but i don't think it's the most exciting uh, narrative to take. Um, we should mention that uh, C is played by Andrew Scott, who's most famous for playing Moriarty on the Sherlock series. Oh, I thought he was most famous as Hot Priest in Fleabag. I thought that was the defining role. <laughs> so that was, okay, that's now. This was then. And I think a lot Fair. of criticism was drawn because he's introduced as a guy working at MI5 and uh, he was known for playing a famous villain and he just he just looks sinister and so people were like, uh, he's obviously the bad guy, Bond. Shoot him or something. You know, that that is true without even thinking about it. The second he came in, it was like, I can tell that M is going to, have, like, that he's M's adversary and that that will, yeah, yeah it's that, that kind of is signposted. I guess we'll find out what, like, elements, uh, you know, kind of ring to me as a real problem versus, like, a, a kind of something I can just leap over in my credulity within the film because yeah it's true that's very obvious and yet it doesn't bother me the whole subplot of the like nine eye security thing is one of the, the double-edged swords of a thing that it will remain timely for a long long time but also it's kind of blasé because however bad movies are about you know like oh they're spying on us it's like my phone continually gives me adverts for things i was just discussing so yeah. it's not that scary i just I, i'm a, i just live with it now i just have like uh, a mic in my house uh, that follows me around that I put in my pocket. So it's very true. Is there a lot of uh, spy paranoia happening in the UK, Alistair? <laughs> Always. I mean, earlier this year, during the first lockdown, um, one of the big, you know, sort of th conspiracy theories about coronavirus is that it was a hoax uh, invented. Uh, and it had something to do with 5G masts being built. That's right. Um, because they were being built by the, uh, the the Chinese tech company Huawei. And mm. it was just this entire conspiracy theory among boomers on Facebook that it was, 
just the, the Chinese government building 5G to try and get into our phones, not realizing that the government is already in our phones anyway, but, and we just live with it. But, you know, a bit of paranoia, it helps them get through the first lockdown, I guess. True. As long as there's yeah. someone else. Yeah, it's it's how because I've been like reading how like sort of the the QAnon theories have sort of caught on in the UK, and it was all just because during the first lockdown, a lot of boomers were just on Facebook and Twitter in ways that they normally wouldn't be, and they somehow brainwashed themselves into believing all these conspiracy theories. Um, and yeah, it's, I think it's I think wild. we're 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 down the line from a Bond villain who's basically just a Mark Zuckerberg stand-in. It's gonna happen. I mean, the whole Craig year is defined by these kind of effete you know, bureaucrat villains. I feel like the next thing is going to be just some young tech guy. It's going to be like a poor analog. It's going to be like the social network, but with James Bond. Um, It's going to happen probably with the next, the next generation they'll do it. And it will be so, so loosely based on reality and they'll miss a bunch of good opportunities and stuff. But I'm calling that now. There's going to be Mark Zuckerberg villain down the line doing something Facebook-ish. Well, yeah, lest, lest we forget, uh, Javier Bardem was, you know, he was a scorned uh, MI6 agent, but he was also a world-class computer hacker, and he could get into any machine anywhere, uh, even so much so that he could predict the uh, the times in the tube station for him to blow up a tunnel and distract Bond while he got away. Um, sorry, Alistair, I, I think I cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah, no, what I was just going to say is just like loosely on this point about sort of the paranoia of watching over of as being watched over is the fact that Spectre is sort of in a trend of blockbusters during that era that were all sort of cottoning on to the same idea. Like a few months after this came out, there was a film I didn't like, which was Captain America Civil War, which was also about the mm. should we should the watchmen be watched? Should oh, yeah. should they be should they be spied upon? And it is just interesting that there was this period of time where that was just the theme underneath all of the big blockbusters I, I think spectre does it well initially but doesn't really get into it beyond the broad strokes but that doesn't necessarily matter because it's a big loud action movie and when it's being a big loud, loud action movie it's very fun yeah yeah excellent points um yeah so bond uh i think at this point we get to see bond's apartment which is a, a rarity in the films i don't think we've seen it since uh maybe a brosnan snuck it in but uh, definitely live and let die stands out as seeing uh bond's abode uh, this one's and, a little less glamorous yeah this is it's kind of really this is daniel craig's character he's there's that running meme of that like uh that one bedroom apartment which is just a chair with a tv in the middle of the living room and there's no furniture and it's like men will live like this and think it's okay it's basically basically <laughs> it's, bond it's is pretty much that yeah yeah he's just kind of got boxes with all his things strewn about nothing's unpacked but he's been there for a while he's, he's basically like a michael mann character but he actually had like you say he has boxes with things in it. the michael mann character doesn't even have that they literally just have chrome steel furniture laid out and nothing on the walls and nothing on the shelves nothing in the yeah. way this is like at yeah. least like it looks like the intention he would move in but obviously he is an unsettled man and he, his his living conditions reflect that he doesn't spend a lot of time at home obviously yeah and then this is weird he has a tape from judy dench as m telling him to follow the man that he kills in the pre-title sequence um which is i just kind of thought was a weird thing to i guess sam mendes really wanted to bring her back even though he took the pleasure in killing her in the last film 
Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. That's that's that's. I feel it's kind of like a misstep for me to to have this uh, this video cameo. It it's. Well, um, I, I can only. Th- oh, go ahead. No, well, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I felt it felt normal enough to me in the, in terms of that. There's a broader, you know, if if M was interrupted by something, and obviously Ray Fiennes takes over the role, that you know, there's a grander arc in conspiracy that this film is trying to fill us in on. So I, yeah, I kind of think it it made sense to me as a kind of a that the previous M was on to something. It's a bit of a Deus Ex Machina kind of thing, obviously, to kind of like link yeah. things. Because as you say, we start in media rays. We, we start with Bond in the middle of a chase, but no one else knows how. And this is how. It's because M pegged something, but never told anyone except Bond. He's the only person he could trust or she could trust. Um, yeah, it, it's to me, it's neat enough. And it kind of slots in, you know, a little Judy Dench cameo. Uh, so, you know, why, why not? You know, it works for me. It is just this era of Bond films trying to connect in a way that the others don't. Like the Craig era do- doesn't do standalone adventures. Yeah, no, yes. there's there's an absolute dedication to world building, which I think certainly came from the you know or kind of uh, it seems to be the 20th century blockbuster, 21st century blockbuster is all about world building for better or worse. The MCU is all about it. It's this idea of basically i don't know the telefication of, of movies that everything is becoming like oh you want to get this movie you got to watch eight movies first and it's kind of like yeah. for better or worse there there's definitely advantages to that you know but there's also sometimes it's a little bit tiresome and unnecessary i think the bond films modulated pretty well i guess it's hard for me to judge but i feel like you wouldn't be completely lost if you watched this movie separate of everything else you'd be a bit lost you you'd know that there's certain things like oh something you know something else happened. I don't know who Vesper Lind is, but um, it does help that they just insert right. a photocopy of her later on uh, in this movie. <laughs> which, well, while joking the... about her, while joking about all women being the same to Bond. But we'll get, we'll get to that that's down true. the line. Well, I think that's, that's probably the largest criticism that the Craig era receives uh, is that everything is, it's its own connected universe because up until this point, every Bond film worked as a standalone adventure. Sure, there were some, you know, references and some characters brought back in, in between films, which was fine. But you could watch them all alone uh, and enjoy them on its own merits. Um, Casino Royale rebooted the series and it does it in spectacular fashion. You wonder where can you go from there? Quantum of Solace decides to take the approach of being a direct sequel, picking up immediately on the heels of Casino Royale. And uh, that seemed to have wrapped up. And then Skyfall happens, and that sort of feels like its own uh, independent adventure without any connection to Spectre or Quantum or anything. But then Spectre comes around, and it, like, ties Skyfall back to Quantum and Casino Royale as its own. And I think that's what fans don't like the most about this movie, aside from the twist of one of the characters that we'll get into later, but... Um, I think, yeah, it's the it's the the MCU effect is what I call it is just everything has got to be references made and built upon previous films that pay off. Um, But here it kind of feels more like an afterthought for me than it does feel something planned ahead. Um, We should mention that uh, Spectre has been a rights issue in the Bond franchise for 40 years at this point. Uh, Since Thunderball was produced, it went to Kevin McClory who produced Never Say Never Again, and his estate held the rights of Spectre until after Skyfall was released, they got the rights back. So 
to do that, I guess there was this is their celebratory victory lap to you know make the film all about Spectre. But I think they went too far in in trying to connect everything to the past. Um, I don't know. I still I still like it quite a great deal, but I I can understand why this would upset several people. Um, anyways, uh, yeah, let's uh let's move on to uh we get a cue sequence. Uh, much like the chip in Bond's arm in Casino Royale, he gets smart blood injected into his veins, uh, which is nanotechnology to track his health and movements. We've, we've got to wonder, is just Bond's body just littered with tech? They seem to be sticking something <laughs> new in him every other movie at this stage. And it's like, Do they take the other stuff out or is it just like floating around? Uh, well, the chip gets cut out in Casino Royale, but uh, yeah, I, I oh, did I wonder... That. I did wonder, are, the, are these nanobots just sort of living in his blood forever? Because that seems like something that would be very hard to get out of somebody. And uh, this scene, you know, stays very socially relevant now that governments around the world are injecting us with 5G. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but the cell reception is fantastic. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you can make a call anywhere. Um, yeah, we get, a, we get a tease at an Aston Martin DB10 uh, but uh, as Bond has been grounded, he doesn't get it. Uh, it goes to 009. Um, and uh, actually, the only gadget that I think Bond gets in this movie is the watch. Uh, Jack, you're the gadget guy. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, there, there's several watch or several what we could consider gadgets in this thing. But yeah, the only one that's kind of gifted to him is the watch, which is uh, originally a timepiece. But then Q reminds him it has a very loud alarm. So obviously we know it, it. it's a bomb, but honestly, that's not a lot of a briefing. Bond picks that one up, but it's kind of like, um, if I have an explosive attached to my wrist, I think I would need a hell of a lot more instruction <laughs> on how to deploy that and what size explosion even is it. That would all seem relevant, but this is James Bond where he just he just knows how to use it and works out very, very handily later. So, you know, good, good stuff. But yeah, not um. I mean, the Craig era has kind of moves away from the gadgetry. Generally speaking, they're more about field work and fighting and shooting. Um. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it stays in line with that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, as Q said in the last film, uh, you're probably wondering why we don't give you an exploding pen. Well, we don't really do that anymore. Um. But uh, yeah. Any uh, any other? Uh, how do you feel about the the Q scene, Alistair? Are you are you a fan of Ben Shaw? <laughs> um, well, my sort of note here is that it's quite interesting that mm. this is the only franchise I can think of that has two openly gay actors in central roles in it, because you've got Ben Wishart and Andrew Scott. Mm. And I was racking my brains while I was watching it, trying to think of any other franchise blockbusters that, you know, will be seen by hundreds of millions of people that would put two openly gay actors front and centre. And I, I, I can't come up with another answer so yeah kudos to, to to spectre well as the joke goes the mcu has scarlett johansson who will play whatever you need her to do oh, so yeah. but that's, that's as close as we get yeah i mean i can't i can't pick anything else off the top of my head well i mean the last avengers film did introduce an openly gay character oh, which was this married <laughs> guy in a group therapy session who we know is gay because he mentioned he has a husband in the 30 seconds he's on screen and yeah. he doesn't have a. I don't believe he has a character name either. He's probably just guy at therapy huge, session. Huge and, win for the gay community there. Just <laughs> tremendous victory. And it was played by one of the Russo brothers who directed the film. So uh, yeah, I that's so funny. when you said that uh, I was that ran to my mind. Like the first 
instance of a gay character in the MCU was just some guy in a group therapy session who's on screen for 30 seconds. Uh, I mean, and then Pixar did the exact same thing in Onward because there's like, mm. they, they trumpeted up like, oh, we've got the first LGBT character in a Pixar movie. And it's just like this one-eyed cop who appears in like one scene and briefly mentions her girlfriend. And it's like, wow, gay rights. We're seconds away from like Disney doing like, you've introduced our first trans character and it's going to be a pizza delivery person who just shows up like, here's your pizza. <laughs> also, I am trans and that will be the whole, because yeah, I mean, representation politics is just in the toilet in Hollywood. So you're right. I mean, because because both of these characters are, are these, these actors play actual real characters. Admittedly, their, their sexuality is not really a, key point of of the film but you know they're there and they're they're out working which is kind of works um so yeah i I count that one as as something of of interest too and i will say it's it's interesting q takes a much larger role in this film than in anything prior he's uh she gets some field work which again is kind of nice because they did that sparingly they do that sparingly throughout the the bond franchise it was kind of nice to see him because he's a pretty entertaining kind of a, a character within the the frame of bond because obviously mm-hmm. he is he's much he's a different generation much younger and kind of is uh represents that shifting tension that all the other films try and kind of make loud and writ large it's like you know we're being replaced by computers and it's kind of like even within mi6 you know bond is being replaced by like a guy in his early 20s who just sits at a computer all day but honestly that's kind of where things are going and they kind of they they exercise that pretty well and it probably you know we acknowledge problems within this like the the greater espionage computer hacking elements of this and of skyfall are largely just MacGuffins. they just you know they're there to like leverage the story forward as necessary it's like all you need to go is like, he hacked a computer and that's why this is happening now. And it's kind of like, that's no one needs to ask any more questions. So that's kind of a nicer, um, what would you say, more like, you know, uh, personal uh, representation of that. And kind of nice to see him going out into the field as well, where Money Penny had previously been in the field and now returned to the office. And has and has a home life of some description, which I think is uh, you know, another interesting thing they allude to here. Um but anyhow, yeah, there, there's there's a few interesting details. And like I, I mentioned about Skyfall, I feel like there's more of a, a movement to a Mission Impossible-style focus here, that Bond is not a, a single man. Uh, there's a team that back him up, and while he is the, the kind of hands operating in the field, that he's not alone um, in a way that's kind of, you know, interesting, which ironically, actually, the Mission Impossible movies first undid by having a team that all die within the first five minutes and then it's just tom cruise on his own which seemed yeah. like a weird decision but that's for an entirely different podcast so i'm gonna shut up about that now yeah it's for your mission only is uh, when we'll cover that one um but yeah and also interesting that uh in all previous films uh like money penny q and m usually only appear for one scene and then yeah here you're right they basically make a supporting part of the mi6 team and they're out in the field as well um, and it just—it makes me wonder, going into No Time to Die, if uh, they'll continue to have them in large roles, or if maybe these actors will stay committed to the franchise and just pop up for like three minutes every now and then uh, for for the end of time. Um, you know, I certainly think that would be cool if uh, Ray Fiennes stayed as M uh, long after Craig retires. But um, yeah, maybe that's just me being wishful thinking. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, after uh, the Smart Blood, uh, we go to Rome. Bond attends the uh, the funeral of uh, Sciarra's widow. She's played by Monica Bellucci, uh, giving us our first uh, age-appropriate Bond girl probably since uh, Octopussy, if I'm not mistaken, with Maud Adams. Possibly so, yeah. I, th- I think, uh, yeah, because uh, Monica Bellucci is, we, we track age differences here. We're doing the whole Reddit thing. Uh, be Honestly, before <laughs> I was aware of it on Reddit, three years back, we decided it would be fun to track age differences. And honestly, yeah. I'm, I, I, I didn't have time to do the full research on this, but Bellucci is about four years older than Daniel Craig. Um, and I'm not sure on, since Honor Blackman might have been, like his pussy galore might have been the last time a Bond girl was older than Bond. I'm not 100% sure about that. But it, does, it doesn't happen often. So that's that's kind of cool. Um, although it's still kind of dumb that he just shows up and is like, oh, it's Monica Bellucci and we'll just, you know, we'll bang for a bit and then I'm just going to head off. It's, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's Bond. What am I complaining about this for? This happens every <laughs> single time. Um, I, don't know. I do wish she was in it more, though. Um, I think that's kind of a missed opportunity to not have her through to the end. I mean, honestly, yeah, if you're going to hire a Monica Bellucci, why would you not give her more to do? But she does get that coveted with credit on the opening credits. That's, that is true. true. She did. She auditioned in the Brosnan era. I think she auditioned for the role that went to Terry Hatcher eventually, um, and she got turned down for Terry Hatcher, which, I mean, honestly, probably good for her wow. because it was a really shitty role for Terry Hatcher. Like, it was just the worst Bond girl role, practically. So, honestly, that won't work yeah. out pretty well on, on her part, but I'm not sure if Monica Bellucci showed him, was like, I want to be in your movie. I'd be like, no, that would, I would lose my job, I feel like, but... So it goes. Swings and roundabouts. Yeah, so yeah, Monica Bellucci's character um, Madame Sciarra I didn't catch her first name. Uh, Lucia, I think. Yeah, Lucia, there you go. She's basically doomed to be killed by Spectre because her husband was a member of Spectre and uh, or, well, we don't know it's Spectre yet. It's just this shadowy organization and two men come to her house to kill her but Bond kills them both sleeps with her, and then learns that uh, this organization is having a meeting uh, late at night. Uh, so he goes and travels to the depths of the city to attend. I like, and again, I say I really enjoyed this movie. And I think part, like, I don't know how I best characterize it, but I feel like some of the goofiest parts of this movie are actually why I really enjoyed it. It feels like they've kind of worked out the formula. And maybe, you know, back to like classic Bond, which always had a certain childlike, quality to its storytelling a certain simplicity kind of like hammered down flat kind of logic to them i mean the idea that they have every all the secret members of the secret club have rings with octopuses on them to represent the tentacles and all of society and they have a big meeting in rome around a big table with masks and it's like it's goofy as hell um they're not wearing masks i made that up but they should have been why not They, they could have done that um yeah like i just think this is a really funny story element and isolated it's ridiculous it's like could you imagine if like the world's biggest crime family or crime syndicate all like got together in a big room and just hung out there uh to have a board meeting literally to have people read like the, the shareholders report and like my status update on on like subterfuge it's absurd but honestly i kind of really enjoyed it it's just one of those really like holy cinematic conceits uh works really well for me if i'm being honest 
Yeah, I think the G7 leaders should meet up like this whenever <laughs> they do. I mean, it's it's interesting actually. They, I mean, they do uh, kind of run a, a parallel with this that there is a kind of the equivalent G7 meeting. So it's like you know, it's just the two sides. It's almost like M, you know, the Fritz Lang movie that has like the police and the thieves having their own separate meetings for the same aim. And of course, in this movie, they will then intermingle and we'll find out that uh, honestly the, the the conspiracy the government and the the secret agent whatever secret spy group are actually one and the same almost uh which again to me feels very blasé post 9-11 but whatever we'll just take what we can get um depending on how cynical you are honestly the bond universe seems pretty ideal almost it's like well at least someone's doing something um, so you know can't take it but yeah i can absolutely understand people complaining about this sequence one thing i really wish happened in this sequence okay we get the introduction here of uh christoph waltz's character kind of in in shadow who we kind of understand to be the leader of this whole thing we don't know who he is yet but i will also get the introduction of uh hinks who is uh dave yes. bautista as and frankly it feels like the first one we had like a really good henchman villain in a while and very much like the Red Grant from Russia with Love character. But his introduction, I think, is goofy as hell here because it's literally like a guy uh, is a guy volunteers to take over for Sciara's position and everyone's like, OK. And then Dave Bautista's character just comes out and just murders him. Uh, unexplained, just like sticks his thumbs in his eyes because he has like uh, little metal thumb fingernails like that are never used again in the film, which is a bit weird. Uh, or never seen to be that I'm aware of. But like, it, see, it seems like a gimmick, and then it's like we, they didn't even stick with it. But I really wanted someone else to come out and murder him after that, and it would continue, <laughs> and that would be like the staffing <laughs> policy. And they could do it like, you know, The Rock could come out and murder him, and then who would be bigger? You know, they could work it all the way back to, I don't know, should have had Sean Connery come out at the end and just do it, and they'd be like right back with where we began. But I, I it was just, again... It's very silly. People who take the Bond series very seriously as a, like a story exercise, I could understand them being very annoyed by this, but I also don't understand why you would ever do that. So this whole sequence worked very well for me. And Dave Bautista, I think, is one of those guys who just reads very well on film. He's very likable. Honestly, he he survived Stuber for me. So that's uh, that's <laughs> impressive, you know? I came out of that movie not disliking him. So that's pretty pretty good so more dave batista except he dies later spoiler alert well yeah i mean i i love this spectre meeting i love how shadowy it is i love the mood and the atmosphere i love hinks's entrance and him murdering that guy to prove his credentials as a killer i uh i i think it's just it's fantastic and you're right it only really works as a, a blatantly cinematic convention but i mean to hell with realism i think this is just a wonderful sequence and i don't i don't think many people when they criticize this movie i think they actually hold this as one of the highlights and i would certainly say it's it's up there for me too as like one of the best sequences in the film um but yeah hinks kills a guy and then the the leader at the table uh knows that bond is actually in attendance and he calls him out which leads to a chase through the streets of uh, rome with Hinks is in, I don't know what car he's in, but he's chasing Bond, who has stolen the the Aston Martin DB10. But uh, it's like a it's funny... it's a Jaguar CX75 prototype. 
Uh, well, there, there so you yeah, go. it's yeah. I thought it was a Lamborghini because I don't know. I just like it looks like one of those cars, but it isn't. It's a prototype well, I would guess, as well. Yeah, f- that or Ferrari, but uh, yeah, yeah. No, it was, apparently this is the first Bond movie that has two prototype cars in it. If you're uh, like ent- interested in that sort of thing, um, so good to know. I really like this chase sequence, honestly. Uh, and this is kind of where I started to realize that I feel like um that this film just had this fantastic um like leisurely quality to it because this this action sequence and i know like action sequence is supposed to be like exciting and and you defy your expectations and stuff this is this is like like looks like a video game cut reel it's just two sexy cars driving around and we're looking at them and they're not like crashing into each other or anything they're mostly just driving fast on empty streets they're not even like weaving through traffic that much there's a little bit of it at the start where you know there's like one little guy in a little fiat whatever 25 tiny car and they like push him out of the way there's a few little bits and pieces like that but mostly it's just like it's just love like beautiful cars in beautiful rome and the vatican um but i it's just a wonderful like leisurely quality to it i was kind of like yeah this is like absolute sunday movie entertainment and uh, it just strikes a balance for me really really well just in terms of how they temper the kind of like excitement of like these two men are chasing each other with sort of like we're just gonna sit back and watch the nice cars go vroom and then you know it it works out pretty well and then we have our our final deployment of of some gadgetry where and they have a couple of jokes in here where the the db10 has not actually been outfitted with all of the stuff (laughs) so there's no ammunition for the gun so he can't do that so he eventually gets some flame exhausts and then he has an ejector seat um yeah which is you know I like this sequence. It's a very, um, uh, well, how would I describe it? It's a very kind of like, fuck you money kind of sequence. <laughs> like, you can't, oh, yeah. no one else I, can I do can this. Um, it's, yeah. Go ahead, Alistair. No, I was going to say that this uh, is actually sort of what I was talking about earlier in terms of Sam Mendes injecting some of the levity back into the franchise after, you know, many people said, you know, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace for this gritty reboot. I mean, all of the action se- well, most of the action sequences in Skyfall and this are punctuated with these big moments of broad comedy that are designed to get mm. like sold out multiplexes of mainstream audiences, you know, cackling away on a Friday night. And you yeah. know, I mean, in Skyfall, it's the uh, the, the tube station chase that you know the Ed sort of is punctuated by the the old couple just like cracking a one liner about uh, Daniel Craig jumping onto the back of a tube uh, mm-hmm. carriage. And that's sort of the same thing that how he punctuates the sequence here, what with the guy being pushed off the road and his airbag going off, <laughs> and then just the way it just ends with the ejector seat parachute and the sort of the, the winking Daniel Craig saying hello to the passers-by on the side of the street. Like, it's very broad, very mainstream stuff. But it is handled very, very well, and it is very entertaining, even though you've seen this in a million movies before. Yeah, well, it's probably, like, the most realistic chase scene in any of these movies, because a lot of them, the cars are doing, like, crazy stunts and jumps and flips. But, like, this is just really two cars motoring around Rome, and, uh, like, they just go down the stairs, and it's just kind of shot very matter-of-factly. They, they do this, they do this. There's not, 
you know they're not ramming into each other they're not firing guns at each other it's it's really only the uh, like the rear exhaust flames or is the only gadgetry that comes into play but yeah other than that this is just a extended it's also a, like a big expo exposition dump too because bond is on the phone with money penny while she's researching uh who he thinks is his dead foster brother franz oberhauser as the leader of the meeting and uh so there's there's it's got like this sort of two for one part of it working um but uh yeah i i enjoy it a lot uh, as well i think it's uh, as some as someone who's terrible at multitasking in the car with phone even with being wired in i i do enjoy the concept of like high speed chases and also like just dialing up someone like and honestly no phone has a proper interface to do that it would never work it would like crash or hang and be like sorry you want to order pizza something like that it would never work um yeah. so uh, yeah yeah good <laughs> stuff i enjoyed this this is proper dad cinema for the dads that's true <laughs> dad cinema yeah i mean well you know it is like you said it's langoriously paced this is definitely like a, a dad sunday afternoon movie he would just kind of put on and uh and enjoy to chill out it's for a bit yeah it's exactly the kind of thing you'd watch and then you go out and you get in your like you know your your hyundai elantra or whatever and just like just drive around the neighborhood and like yeah let's turn the music up a little bit more i could do that you know yeah, and then yeah. and park parallel park really skillfully afterwards <laughs> <laughs> and this is sort of keeping back to those old classic Bond movies because the way that most people in the UK have seen them is on the background on TV on a sa on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon on ITV, you know. And this feels like it was made by a you know a director who's obviously grown up in that same environment, knowing that his film will be in circulation for decades to come on Sunday afternoon television. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's oh, yeah. that's exactly the energy again. And I think the big difference, because like two and a half hours is a, is a big runtime, but I, I, I appreciate this one kind of settles into kind of different energies for different scenes and kind of takes its time and understands that like this car sequence is not exactly entirely functional, you know, necessary. It's not like, you know, ruthlessly functional as a chase sequence full of excitement it's also a little bit about you know just like look at this look look at these cars we all look at this look at the lighting <laughs> Boy, like this is so fancy everything you know but um it's you know compared to some like the the mcu movies um like they they those movies are so focused like every single scene has so much packed into them because they've obviously just been focus grouped to death. So they have like, you know, almost X number of jokes, X numbers, you know, amount of exposition. Everything is like, they're incredibly focused, even as they're like runtime bloats and bloats and bloats until I believe Avengers Endgame is four days long. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and it's like constantly just like adding more. And it's like, there's 50 characters in this scene now and everyone get you know, and there's X number of things. And we uh, obviously with Disney, it's like, you know, we need one woman to talk now so that we get this <laughs> thing. And, you know, three women have to be funny by the 20 minute mark or else we'll have missed our board metrics, you know, and like, <laughs> like that's how Disney makes those films. Whereas the Bond movies have just a little bit more freedom to just kind of like sit back, kind of like there's a tone to the scene each scene and each sequence that is much more enjoyable like watching this is so much to me more enjoyable i've i've had people who've complained about like i don't like bond movies they're stupid they're just like the marvel movies you know they're just big expensive stupid crowd-pleasing movies and you know fair enough but honestly watching them they really do feel different they're very different experiences to watch and i'd take a bond movie over a marvel movie any day of the week uh honestly oh, even the worst of them 
and that's one reason I think is because they do actually they they feel less beholden to just uh like bureaucrats. I'm sure they are, but they they feel much less beholden to like uh you know kind of like uh, I guess like uh, what we say flavor of the day kind of representation stuff which really is going to age like the first and second gen Marvel movies are going to age like fucking milk in like 20 years time they'll be unwatchable uh, and they'll yeah. reboot all of them and people will complain about them and I'll ignore it uh, I won't be able to ignore <laughs> it everyone will be talking about it it's going to be horrible uh. yeah I mean there's a reason that these the bond has endured for basically half as long as cinema's been around like the MCU turned out 22 movies in like nine years and yeah each one is I mean you could say oh it's better than the last one but that's their shelf lives are very short it's it's they're more just in the moment movies and yeah they look like ass and I yeah I'm not a not a fan so yeah bond gets everything right as far as these big blockbusters go um yeah anyways Alistair do you have any uh, lingering thoughts on the the car chase or the spectre meeting in Rome um I mean Aside from just echoing what you guys said, I mean, I just, I do love it when films just like lean into their ridiculousness in this way. And I think that that's partially one of the reasons why I loved it so much the first time is that this, you know, gritty reinvention of the franchise with Casino Royale, you know, that disguise has fully been taken off and it's now just embracing the silliness that we've come to expect from a Bond film in yeah. a way that's just really entertaining. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, Bond tracks down a figure known as the Pale King, who is said to be the next target of Spectre. And the Pale King is, of course, Mr. White, who returns after being in Casino Royale and Juan Masalas. Uh, I actually really like that they brought this character back to sort of give him his own proper closure, because he does have some big moments in the Craig era. Um, and I, I like their their little meeting, his, his dilapidated cabin in the snow. Um... Uh, yeah, what do you think of uh, Mr. White's final moments, Jack? Yeah, this this feels like the the best effort to retcon everything into Spectre. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, an actual, you know, kind of physical link, a person, a character. And, and it was always something where, you know, the previous movies have always been kind of like, there's something bigger, but obviously they're waiting on a lawsuit before they could reveal it. Um you know this this i think counteracts the the truth that like certainly skyfall skyfall's integration into the specter narrative is thin at best it's a very very loose kind of a thing the, even the guy did you know Javier Bardem's character de silva didn't even seem like he would work for specter or need to um he seemed like kind of a lone wolf to a certain degree and that seemed to be kind of key to his entire disposition um, so, you know, it's a very loose kind of like, oh, actually, they all work for this guy. It's, it's you know, kind of like, oh, sure, why not? This works well, I think. Um, yeah, bring in the, this one character kind of as a, who who was kind of like a nameless suit previously. And now we find out he's got his own joint, his, his own kind of ventures and, and weight within this thing. So, uh, although I do think his whole, his line about, like, you're a kite dancing in a hurricane, it's going to be a bit much, but, you know, whatever, it'll go with it. I remembered it, so. <laughs> that line is all over the trailers. It was, like, the one thing they would repeat every time there was an ad. Of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, so yeah, Mr. White, uh, he's been poisoned by Spectre, by Thallium, so he only has weeks left to live. Bond gives him another out. Uh, Spectre, Mr. White tells Bond to protect his daughter from Spectre, and then he shoots himself. Um, Bond tracks his daughter down to a uh, health club up in the mountains. And, and, she's and luckily she's hot. Very true. She's hot. She's available. She's young. Um, she's uh, Madeline Swan, played by Leia Seydoux. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think she's great, uh, in this film. Uh, Alistair, do you have any thoughts about Madeline? Um, I mean, for me, this was where on the rewatch, the film starts to get, you know, way too plotty, way too tied in with the, the previous Craig entries in a way that started dragging for me this time in a way it didn't when I watched it initially. And mm. I think the reason for that might be when I saw this at the cinema, I'd obviously powered through rewatches of all the Craig films, you know, ready. So I had, you know, I had the franchise fresh in my mind, whereas this time I've just watched this one mm-hmm. on its own. And I think this is where the Craig era, the, you know, thing of trying to tie all the films together doesn't work in its favour because it as a standalone adventure, this, because of its ties to, you know, minor characters in previous films, yeah, it, it's not thrilling just watched in and of itself. I, like, honestly, until you've just mentioned it now, I forgot that Mr. White is a figure that we see in earlier films. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would say if this is like... Um... I think the character isn't. She's very typical Bond girl kind of character for the Craig era. But part of the issue with that is that, like, I think literally she's Vesper Lind too. Like, she's the sequel to a character, which is uh, yeah. not a brilliant writing standpoint. And she has the same kind of vulnerabilities as Vesper Lind in that she's, you know, she's aware of brutality and violence, and she wishes to move away from it, and she's not. I, she's a little more field trained as it turns out a little more hands-on and capable but like it's still this it, it feels like a very much like this berlin is dead and bond is hurting from it but now you know we we kickstart off again with another woman and it's it's literally just like vardas le bonheur that that film happiness <laughs> uh, like it's it's literally that of like women are interchangeable to men and yeah. like it's the same kind of concept it's like oh well your woman that you loved that you loved so th- truly died that's okay there's another woman and she's pretty too and just carry on it's it's a little bit like for me it's a little troubling in that they they they, they're hanging a lot on it dramatically and i don't think it exactly holds up to it and this is nothing to do with sido's playing of the character i don't think there's much you can you you know you can't really escape from the larger dramatic structure that the, the character exists in um it's not a huge issue to me because i don't think like because frankly, I think there's like two good Bond girls ever. I get maybe three because of Vesper Linda. And then you have pretty much um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, uh, Diana Rigg. And then you have Tracy, Sophie Marceau, uh, pretty much Electra King, mm-hmm. is probably, to my mind, honestly, probably the best written female character in the entirety of the James Bond universe. Everyone else just kind of falls in between. Um, the best exchange, I think, probably between women or between Bond and a woman is in Casino Royale is that Vesper Lind sequence where they're like feeling each other out and, and kind of yeah. profiling each other. 
it's always searching for that high again. And I think it's really awkward that they just like found another woman to become the mouthpiece for the same kind of an idea. Um, but you know, it's, it's sort of like it, it flies well enough. Um, as I say, I couldn't, you know, if I got bogged down in this stuff, these films would never, they, they'd never work for me. So it's not so bad. Yeah, and I agree that like Leah Sadu does the best with that role. I mean, my complaint isn't with her so much as just the way that her character exists to be an extension of a minor character from a previous film. And just all it needs is just like a tiny rewrite so it doesn't have to be this big interconnected thing. Because when the Craig Ever films get plotty and just, you know, have to add something... Mm-hmm. This sort of, I don't know, this intrigue beyond just the bombastic silliness, that's when they do start to lose me. Yeah, I think there's there's an issue in the Craig era, like I mentioned before, of kind of like, they, they get a little bit inside their own head. They get a little bit smart, quote unquote, and they start to be like, you know, sort of like, here's what we're doing, where, you know, we're aware of Bond lore, we're examining this or that. And like, frankly, the best way to do that, I think, is like, the fight with Hinks on a train. It's like anyone who's watched all the Bond movies goes like, that's from Russia with love, but like brought to the, you know, brought into the new generation. It's, you know, it's not the same thing, but it's, it, it's an ode to clearly uh, that, that works. Whereas, you know, the kind of like, you know, we're aware that Bond has, you know, father issues. So this character is a father issue or this character is a flip side of like, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? And it's kind of like, this is all very well, like this is, dramaturgy 101 and i think sometimes the craig era gets a little bit bogged down in kind of like exploring those elements and very very uh kind of vocally telling you that they're exploring those areas um and yeah it, it sort of slows things down a little bit and you just kind of wonder at a certain point i'm not exactly sure how much emotional heft you can get out of the man with the exploding watch you know or the the guy who you know, winks after pushing someone off a cliff. You know, like, Bond is fun, but he's not, like, Hamlet. <laughs> so, you know, like, you, can, you can't pin 400 years of drama on him. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Uh, so just maybe tone it back a little bit, like, bring it back in. I'm, you know, as I have only seen this movie the one time thus far. It worked okay for me. It didn't, like, really draw me out too much, but certainly... To my mind, it was immediately became aware. It's like, okay, so it's Vesper Lind again. Cool. Uh, like, we were just doing that. But that feels a little bit disrespectful to the fact that they hired an actress to do a job. And they just handed her, like, it, it, it almost feels worse than just, you know, hiring a woman. It's like, you're just the hot woman in the, the sexy dress or whatever that people will look at. You know, you're basically like a car in this movie. You're like the car earlier. That's what we're hiring you for. It almost feels more disrespectful to hire an actress and go like, you are literally a photocopy of something someone else has already been in this movie, but we accidentally killed her. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, up in the air a little bit on that one. I don't know how that one will age for me moving forward, but for now it seems forgivable because it's sort of like because it's i guess because it's a bond movie it it's a, a reason it, this is reasonably well tacked kind of broad storytelling and these all exist in very broad strokes for me so sure why not let's let's do it yeah yeah i guess yeah the thing is that eva green is best for being one of the best bond girls is that uh 
you know, you take her away, but her shadow still casts, she still casts a large shadow over the remaining Craig era Bond films. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, like we said, not Leah Sidhu's fault. You know, she does, she does her best, but yeah, the character just, uh, may not be what it could have been. It's like Rebecca, if he actually, the new woman was also Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen Rebecca yet, but I should fix that soon. Um, don't ben watch Wheatley the Netflix that, right? one. Oh yeah. yeah I was going to say, I hope you're not referring to the Ben Wheatley Rebecca, because that's, actually, uh, I did actually see that and holy shit, that's. God damn. Um, but anyhow, <laughs> it, don't watch it's that. It's certainly a film that exists. It, yes. It's, yeah, for now. <laughs> it's out there in the ether. Um, but yeah, Bond saves uh, uh, Madeline Swan from the, the Institute. Uh, I think there's a few funny uh, Bond or Craig moments uh, here. He He's at the bar and they don't serve alcohol, so they get him like this, this healthy vitamin shake uh i didn't write down what it was called but when they give it to him he looks at it and says do me a favor throw that in the toilet cut out the middleman um and then when security comes to apprehend bond he hits one and then knocks another one unconscious and when the guy first guy he hits starts to come back up bond points him and goes no stay and then he runs away from him i did love that that was a great i mean that's a great gag and points back to alistair says i think humor is modulated really well in this film um yeah and more brought to the fore than i think any of the other uh craig era films which you know balances it out nicely i think it's one of the reasons why this film really did just feel like very enjoyable to sit through it's just got those kind of big laughs in it you know they're like not something you haven't seen before but they just slot in there you're never quite sure where you expect them so when they land uh, it's just very satisfying it's good popular cinema making yeah yeah it's a good time um we get a uh, we get a plane car chase with hinks uh he's got a double barrel handgun uh, that he tries to kill Bond with, but Bond knocks him out and takes everybody out and saves Madeline Swan. Again, they don't do any like he's got the special like double barreled handgun. He's got the weird metallic thumbnails, but none of it's like it would be like having Jaws just mentioning his metal teeth and then do nothing else with them <laughs> for the entire like it's a, it's a weird thing, and I genuinely don't understand why they bothered. Like uh, you know, for a film that's so full of things, you think they could have figured out a few more ways to have them work this stuff in uh it just it's a little weird it's not like a that much of a problem but it's sort of strange like i would on the cut i haven't seen like is there deleted scenes where he does other stuff like he pops a can of beer open with his thumb or something (laughs) i don't know about deleted scenes but i should mention that um this film did uh its script was part of the uh the north korea sony hack that happened back in like 2013 (laughs) or 14 and i think a lot of that was a time that was a time yeah, a lot of this film is actually, especially the third act, was rewritten completely after Hinks leaves the picture. Um, so there's, you know, any any sort of changes were not that thought out as well as they should have been. But uh, yeah, it's it's like you say, Jack, they introduce uh, uh, one cool thing and then, oh, no, they don't use it again. So but uh, um, anyways, I think at this point in the film, we're, we're basically on the train, which, as we've mentioned, is, uh, leads to one of the highlights of the whole film, if not the, the one highlight to die for. Uh, Bond is in the classic white dinner tux, which he looks great in. He's having dinner with Madeline. Then Hinks shows up and they have this fight, um, which is just an excellent fight. It's brutal. It's destructive. They destroy so many compartments and tables. Um, Jack, sing the praises of this fight for me. I know you're a fan. 
Oh yeah, no, this it's good, and and like I've said before, it's very much the the archetype that was built in from Russia with love in the fight with Red Grant uh, in that film. It's kind of like claustrophobic, close quarter, you know, kind of like a uh, compact fighting, uh, lots yeah. of bruising and sweat and crunching and smashing through things. It's you know, it's a good old school brawl, which is something that I mean, the Craig era really wants to move you know, move into this, I think it's maybe the best sequence to kind of, uh, kind of emblify that, that aesthetic. Um, they, of course, counterpointed by having that bond is actually outmatched by Hinks. He's gonna, he's gonna get his ass kicked. And then Madeline Swan intervenes with her combat readiness to save him. Uh, the only, the only issue I have with this sequence is I do not like that Hinks gets a final line where he, where there's that pause where he goes, shit, before getting dragged out of the, the yeah. train. That seemed that, you know, as much as I've just sung the praises of humor landing in this film, that seemed very Marvel, kind of like a pointless addendum. I think Hinks works better when he just doesn't say stuff. Why would he say this stuff? Um, you know, but a minor quibble after a really, a really satisfying punch up. Um, yeah, this is, this is probably the highlight of the film for me. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Um, it's not you know the, from Russia with Love is still the the gold standard the blueprint, but uh, this is you know as good as um, Craig's fighting gets, and uh, I think having a, an effective heavy as Mister Hinks um, sells it so much more because he's just such a big burly guy. Um, Alistair, are you a fan of the uh, the train fight? Oh, definitely. And this is a sequence I've seen countless times because as I, said, I was working at a cinema when this came out. And for some reason, mm. every shift I was doing where I was like, had to monitor screenings to make sure people like weren't on the phones or recording off, you know, anything. Right. Every single screening I was, you know, had to walk into that was playing Spectre was almost always on this scene for some reason. So this this sequence has been burned into my brain and yet it still plays like very well. And it's just an incredibly simple punchline, but I just love any action sequence that ends with the villain getting beaten and upon realizing their defeat, just saying shit. You know, I just, I just love that little, little beat because I'm a simple man with simple tastes. (laughs) Um, One thing I just also just want to mention one other thing, um, which is when I was working at cinema, when people would, you know, come and buy tickets for the film, they would, more often than not, pronounce the f- like the title with a hard R. They'd be like, "Can I have a ticket for Spectra, please?" Spe- <laughs> Spe- Spectra. And it's it's to this day, like five years later, still sends shivers down my spine that this many people thought the film was pronounced Spectra. Do they speak English in England? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so uh, yeah. Spectra. All right. Well, uh, speaking of Spectra, uh, they got off the train and uh, I forgot where they are in this part of the world. They leave from Tangier. Uh, oh, we forgot to mention they go to the uh, one one of their points of contact is to go to the L'Americaine Hotel. Uh, this is where they discover a like Mr. White has like just a room full of videotapes and artillery that's just hidden in this hotel room. Um, and there's even a videotape with uh, Vesperlin's name on it. Um, which again, something cool, but uh, they they don't do anything with it. Um, well, it's just I, I think plot I, point. I like I like the idea that he chooses not to watch it or to keep it. That there's some mm-hmm. kind of a concept that he's moving on. I think that's a reasonably successful 
kind of psychological beat that he's he's moving okay. on. But then, as I also say, he's moving on to Vesperlind too, who's not dead. So it's easier to move on. She's all right there That's in true. the other room. So yeah, she's just, yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah. So uh, we finally meet our uh, our villain proper one Franz Oberhauser who is uh got this lair out that's been formed from a uh a meteor um and uh and uh Bond is captured and he's tied up in this dentist chair that um has like these pneumatic drill bits that uh Franz Oberhauser can control um and at this point in the film we discover that uh after his father's death he uh stopped going by the name oberhauser and he took his mother's name and then this is where we get the dramatic reveal that he's actually ernst stavro blofeld blonde or blonde bond's nemesis from all the previous films um this drew a lot of controversy uh when the film was released um and i think was probably the one aspect people hated the most because they compared it to um the character played by benedict cumberbatch in star trek into darkness who's this guy named John Harrison and he's the villain. But then midway through the picture, he reveals my name is Khan. And I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a very silly reveal, but Jack, knowing the history of Blofeld, how did you, uh, <laughs> what did you, what are your thoughts on this? Sure. Yeah. This one, I'll let it slide. Cause on, I mean, I'll let the reveal slide. Cause I mean, it's a James Bond movie. Like we know, sure we know, but you also, you know, you're going to know to some degree, like, what are we expecting? Like, I'm a little more, I, I'm a little more bothered by like the Mission Impossible movies that do these like wilder, less, like less signposted twists, but that they don't mean anything. And like, that kind of annoys me more than like, kind of like, I'm Blofeld. It's like, oh yeah, we know, keep yeah. moving. Like, that's fine. And I, I do wonder about the whole thing about them being, you know, his adopted brother. And there's this cuckoo motif, the idea that by that, oh, that yeah. Blofeld sees Bond as an interloper into his family and so upset by this and that his father took to Bond and, and helped him and trained him, like trained him, taught him to ski and stuff. Um, that, that he was so bothered by this that he killed his own father and faked his own death and set up a criminal organization in the future. I'm not sure what the dividends of that particularly are. The idea that Bond is the great savior of, of like law and order and that the only person who could truly disrupt it would be his, his mirror image, who would, of course, have to be bonded in some familial sense. Again, it's very drama 101 kind of, and I'm not sure it really yields any major dividends. I'm assuming No Time to Die will lean heavily on it, uh, but I yeah. guess we'll, I guess we'll find out. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like yeah, as as an exposition, it's like fine. Whatever. He's just another in like a line of of a feat kind of businessmen, bureaucrats who are the villains of the Daniel Craig era. Kind of an understanding of this passing world where the villains aren't like the blunt object that is James Bond, that they're, they're computer people and businessmen, and it's just moving money around and stuff like that. Uh, his being Blofeld doesn't feel particularly relevant. Um, I, you know, I don't know if Blofeld reads the same way anymore as a concept of, like, imagine if one person headed up an international organization that controlled the world. It's like, in a world of like Mark Zuckerberg's and so on, it, it sort of feels just a little bit blasé in this idea of kind of cults of personality around one guy who kind of has his fingers and everything. Um, 
what what I will say, I think, rescues it to some degree or kind of elevates it is that Christoph Waltz plays a smarmy kind of nobody villain better than anyone else. Like, I just, the way he works, he's so casually kind of, um, what would be the word, sort, sort of like convincing and cordial. Um, yeah. Something that also like um, Inglorious Bastards rests on incredibly with his just a Nazi character that's just so invitingly sort of like, you know, let's have a chat. Um, Waltz does this incredibly well. And I think this, this elevates him certainly as, you know, he. I think he's a great villain because it's Christoph Waltz playing him rather than that it's Blofeld back. Um, you know, and I think mm-hmm. that was a very good piece of casting. And originally, Gary Oldman was attached to the role but couldn't make a time commitment. And I don't think that would have worked. I don't I know. Um, I think Christoph Waltz is the way to do it because he kind of has this kind of smarmy, self-congratulatory kind of thing that I think melds in with the kind of smarmy, self-congratulatory we got Blofeld back and kind of makes it work pretty well. And it's, I think, a key, a good example of, a, of an actor selling something kind of that maybe is not brilliant, but he sells it well enough that I, I stop asking questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Alistair, do you have uh, any thoughts, criticisms on the Blofeld reveal? Um, well, I mean, it's obvious. <laughs> that, that's, that's my criticism. <laughs> it is just, it is much like the Star Trek Into Darkness thing where it's just like, why did you hide this in the first place? Everybody th- in the yeah. audience knows where this is going. Yeah. Um, my sort of bigger thing is the fact that I'm not as sold as Christoph Waltz in this as you, because I think this is out from his, you know, Tim Oscar and Tarantino movies. This is basically casting directors, seeing him in Inglorious Bastards and just mm-hmm. saying, all right, just do the same thing here. And it's, it is like a world he could sleepwalk through. Whereas I think if you look at Javier Bardem in the previous film, that was again, a case of casting director watching no country for old men say, Oh, he's, he's got a, an Oscar for this villainous role. Let's get in, get him in and hope he does the same thing. But he, you know, he, he didn't do the same thing. He did something, you know, campier and more in line with a Bond film. And Christoph Waltz is just turning up to do the Christoph Waltz thing. And again, I don't think he's bad. I just think it's, it's the it's the, sort of the boring typecast nature of it where it's too he familiar could, he could just do it in his sleep yeah. yeah yeah i mean i think that's that's probably fair enough as as a critique i guess it's just a question of how bothered we are by something of the the repetitious nature of it but yeah i mean i certainly this is not uh miles removed from christopher waltz's or christoph waltz's uh other roles so yeah um but and yeah it, it i kind of watched this than mm-hmm. gary oldman do it to be clear yeah, I, Gary Oldman, I, I don't know what that would have been. Um, well, but... shit, that's what it would have been. <laughs> uh... I, yeah, I just can't help but think Winston Churchill with all the, the makeup on in, in this role. <laughs> Can you imagine if the Oscar. ultimate villain of a Bond film was Winston Churchill, though? And that would, that would turn the franchise on its head. There would be yeah. riots in Britain. Uh... <laughs> yeah, oh my god. Well, yeah, so um, fortunately before uh, Blofeld can drill Bond's brains out, he gives Madeline the watch, which she uses to blow up the uh, the base. Uh, Bond and her escape, they overlook the, uh, they shoot a bunch of guards down. 
um, which just kind of feels like just very video game action. Just Bond sort of targeting nameless guys in black suits with ease. Um, but then the, uh, the entire Spectre base blows up, and I think this holds the Guinness World Record for like the largest uh, outdoor explosion captured on film, which is pretty cool, um, or kind of cool, uh, or lame. I don't know how you feel I, about yeah, it. Yeah, no, that's uh, I didn't, I didn't really. It's a very large explosion. I was looking at it in the film and wondering how they did it because you can see yeah. bodies lying very close. So I assume they must have done some kind of digital mat overlay stuff, or you know, as you would do. And also, the actors, frankly, are far too close to it uh, to be safe. So obviously, there's there's some composite going on there. But uh, I didn't realize they'd actually just blown some shit up for real in the desert. And I, <laughs> I admire that. That's always the way to do it. So good for yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, so Bond goes back to London. At this point, he's basically reteamed with MI6. And they kind of go off into their twin paths with uh, Bond hunting down Blofeld at the old MI6 building. And then MI6 is uh, trying to stop C's. Uh, uh, Nine Eyes program from going online, which is like is supposed to happen at midnight. Um, there's this uh, confrontation between Ray Fiennes and Andrew Scott in Andrew Scott's office, um, and then this is an example of like uh, the kind of the, my the kind of criticism I have for this film is like one step forward, two steps back, where it introduces something good and then it brings it back and makes it worse. And the point I want to bring up is. Uh, Andrew Scott pulls out a gun and he points it at Ray Fiennes and he says, well, isn't that what M stands for, moron? Then he clicks and the gun is empty. And then Ray Fiennes says the best line in the film, which is, and now we know what C stands for. And then he shows him the handful of bullets. And I was like, okay, great. Just leave it at that. But then Ray Fiennes has to go and say careless as if he had to define what C stood for. I could not tell you how loud the groans were at, when I saw this at the cinema. Everybody was just amped up thinking, is Ray Fiennes going to, you know, drop one of his famous in Bruges C-bombs? Yeah. I, I wanted that. I know they couldn't do it, but that would have been great. <laughs> e even even just, just like take out, I want to, I, for the first time, I want to re-edit a Bond film and just cut out the shot of Ray Fiennes saying careless, and you would have a much better Bond film. Just just let us infer that it could mean careless or he could be calling him a cunt, but you can't say that in a PG-13 film. Um, so I don't know. I, 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 I just it just it, they overthought the scene. Um, it, I know it, it's cute. It's supposed to rhyme with Andrew Scott's insult. Isn't that what M stands for, moron? But uh, yeah, just no. just. Yeah. I have the exact same criticism, and it is my biggest criticism of the film. It is, it's the perfect one-liner that they just ruin. Um, and yeah, there are countless examples of films doing things like this. I don't know. My only guess is that maybe even in a sort of PG thirteen, a twelve A rated film, you can't even infer that word. That I would assume. I would assume that is exactly what it was. Is they weren't allowed to leave that sitting there as an inference, which is insane. But I mean. For the longest time, that was the one. That was the only swear word that was like a mandatory 18s rating for the BBFC. So, yeah, and I'm not sure if that still stands. I think they've relaxed it a little bit. Yeah, but. it's in the past. I think it's only in the past ten years that that's yeah. been relaxed to a 15. But even in, because I think Shaun of the Dead was the first film that could get a 15 rating because it has that big wow. C bomb that Nick Frost does right up top, and that's. I 
think he's the first one that got 15 rating, but you're wow. still there's still like a limit. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's heavily policed, and it's clearly anti-Scottish bias. Um, oh yeah, no. Um, <laughs> the there was I was Ken Loach film. I think God, what was it? It was the Ken Loach film about whiskey or something. Oh, the Angel um, Share. Yeah. The Angel Share, and that had to be re-edited because it was initially given an eighteen rating because you know the characters, you know, were just like jokily, you know, calling each other a hey, wee cunt and things like that, and yep. it had to get re-edited <laughs> and. There was just this uproar about like, but it's not even like aggressive or used as an insult. It's like being used as a term of endearment. But no, it had it had to get re-edited because you know you can't you can't drop that word casually. Yeah, and I, I do think that's they ruined a one-liner just because they were like, no, we can't we can't allow it. Which is I don't I don't know if that I assume that probably came from the British side rather than the American side, which is oh definitely unusual. definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it it's it's weird, um, and yeah, just a disappointment, a disappointment at scene. Yeah, uh, I know. I just, I, God, just one great line, and they ruined it. Um, but uh, anyways, I do, I do like for a moment because people that line did draw great laughs before the the careless, and I was like, oh wow, that's the, that was excellent, and then and then the the letdown afterwards was just staggering, but um. Yeah, so uh, M and C fight, uh, which ends in C getting knocked off like the top of his building, and he falls down to his death. Uh, meanwhile, Bond is going through MI6. That building, that building is a death trap, by the yeah. way. <laughs> like, the whole thing is just made of glass, and it's just a massive, huge falling hazard. That No way any safety standard would allow that to work. So kudos to that. That building is getting torn down right after, right after that incident. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's very hazardous. Um, and uh, yeah, so Bond uh, runs through the old MI6 building. Uh, Blofeld has like taking the time to not only like set up the charges to detonate, uh, uh, or maybe that's just the the planned. Oh, I think that was actually the planned demolition. But he goes through and he posts like photos that he printed out of figures from Bond's past all throughout the hallways to taunt Bond as he's searching for Blofeld and Madeline Swan. Um, and then Blofeld reveals that he can escape the building and let Madeline die, or he can try to find and save her, but they would both likely die. Uh, fortunately, because he's Bond, he is able to save both of them in time because uh, he jumps on the, the construction safety net that was designed near the front of the entrance. Um, and then uh, Bond runs outside, or they take the little boat out, and then he shoots down uh, Blofeld's helicopter with a pistol, which is so stupid, I actually love it. It's, uh, you see, and I'm like, there's literally no reason in the midst of all of this they couldn't have put at least, like, a long, long-arm rifle or something in the boat that he could use. Like, there's physically no way you would connect with a target that far away that's above you with a hand pistol. And so he's shooting at it, and I'm like, is this even a thing that it's gonna hit? And then it starts hitting, I'm like, okay, I guess, I guess we're rolling with this, fair enough. And then he shoots it down successfully. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a bit goofy, but I suppose I'd be, it would be ridiculous for me to complain about this at this point. After, as you said, literally Blofeld printed out photos of people and sticky taped them up in places to torture his victim. It's, you know, sure, shot down a helicopter with a handgun from 500 yards. Why not? More. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, can, I can appreciate uh, him trying and actually succeeding. 
But uh, yeah, and there's also this moment that's sort of echoed earlier in M's dialogue that a license to kill is a license not to kill, meaning that drones don't have the, the moral integrity that humans have. So when it comes to gunning down Philofeld in the middle of the street, uh, Bond chooses not to do so and uh, lets him get arrested instead. Um, so yeah, that's uh, and then at the end, he drives off with uh, Madeline Swan. And that is the end of Spectre. Um, Alistair, did you have any other final thoughts on the uh, the film itself before we get into some of the details of the numbers? I mean, I mean, my only thing that I want to say about that sort of final sequence is shooting the helicopter right near some of London's most crowded tourist attractions on an evening. Um, quite a miracle nobody got hit. <laughs> It, it's it's totally fine. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> it's very true. It's true. Yeah. It, is, it is an oddly depopulated London that this occurs in. Yeah, he's, still, he's on the River Thames right next to the London Eye. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, and he's aiming for the air. Things could have gone badly there. Yeah, they, they may well have. Some of those bullets may have come down and killed people off screen. We'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> Just to make a film about the lives ruined by friendly fire and the in the sidelines. I did. I did films. have this idea. I feel like it would be really great to make a Bond movie that's literally it's no Bond at all. It's just a couple of guys down the pub, regular <laughs> citizens, right? And they're just discussing world politics for the last seventy years, and we just hear their version of everything, which presumably is all like you know. Uh, swamp gas reflecting off of weather balloons and industrial accidents because all the stuff that Bond has blown up over the decades is like top secret and they never told anyone the yeah. truth. And that should be a whole other film of just some guys giving a, an alternate history of the world in the Bond sphere. And that could be like, you know, when two guys got killed by like falling bullets by the fence <laughs> that was like shot by like an Islamic terrorist uh, that was swept <laughs> like, like away. The shin, like the Shin Godzilla Bond, essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. And that they should totally make that. That's yeah, I'd love to see that. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's Spectra. I think uh, you know, I, th I think it does have a lot of deserving criticisms, but overall, I think the good outweighs the bad, and it's just a very fun, classical feeling Bond film, and uh, I enjoy watching it. So, um, yeah, let's uh, let's run some numbers. Um, Jack, do you want to go through any... Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of kills to go through. <laughs> there are. This one is doing well. Now, I, I'm going to clarify, I'm not counting... Uh, when they blow up the base, I'm not counting all of the people on the computers we see earlier. I don't know. They could all go home for the evening. They could have been away on a lunch break. We don't know, and I'm not, like, retroactively going back to count all the little underlings running around in, like, the volcano bases and you only live twice. If they're not, like you know, immediately associated with the act. I'm not counting that as an on-screen kill. Sorry. That's fair. So, so he doesn't beat Goldeneye, which honestly, Goldeneye would still be the record holder because he blows up an entire base full of Russian people at the start of that movie too, and we'll never know how many people it is. But this is 33 kills by Bond, which is uh, yeah. second highest, I believe, after Goldeneye with 38. Uh, it's a lot. Um, pretty good stuff. Weird thing about this, he kills everyone in pairs. It feels like there's a few rare single kills, but he pretty much kills everyone in just pairs. Two here, he shoots two guys at the start, he kicks two guys out of the helicopter, shoots two assassins who come for Lucia. It's it's kind of an odd uh, symmetry to it all. 
Um, I am counting the four guards he didn't shoot when he's escaping from the base. When the base explodes, I count those four because I know they're on site at the time. But like I know, all right. the tech people, they could be at lunch somewhere in the dead. They could all take turns going in the rolls down to the, the local cantina. So, yeah, 33 people, not bad. That brings Craig's total kills to 90 and actually brings the franchise's total kills, from by my count, to an even 400 that uh that that bond nice. has done so there we go so we're at 400 starting into no time to die which is uh not bad at all uh, and craig has craig needs to uh kill 28 people <laughs> in no time to die to equal brosnan as the most uh the most lethal james bond so i'm wishing him luck i'm sending positive vibes i hope he can just murder a whole bunch of people for my entertainment I oh, mean, I, so I I was going to say that he should just murder 20 people to leave it at 420 and everybody can walk out the cinema saying, nice. Oh, <laughs> that would be that would be pretty good. Maybe they'll do it. We don't know. We got to wait till this pandemic dies down so we can we can check it out. He'll need to have betted enough women to hit 69 total for the franchise as well. <laughs> for uh, they're, no time God, they're, they're close, but not quite there yet. No, um, as, as the as the franchise gets increasingly uh, sedate on, on the whole sexual tryst thing, um, darn women's liberation. Not that I think the franchise has done particularly well in that uh, in the later years either. Uh, we got two women here, Lucia and Madeline Swan. Um, as right. we mentioned earlier, uh, Lucia is actually older than Bond, so that's a, a little bit interesting. Um, the pretty big age difference for Leia Sado and, and Craig, uh, 17 years, she was 30, he's 47. That's actually mm. one of the biggest of recent times. Although in Skyfall, there was the unnamed woman at the very start when he's like hanging out, being a grizzled drunk on the beach. And she was, there was a 19 year age difference, but she also didn't even have a name in the film. So it's, I don't know how much we're supposed to count them at, um, which actually is inherently sexist in and of itself. <laughs> she just doesn't even exist because the film decided not to but anyhow um, it obviously did this count the age dis- discrepancy uh, count kind of became less fun once we got through the Roger Warrior because we knew we were never going to catch the highs of the 30 year age difference between him and, and Carol Bouquet in For Your Eyes Only that's never right. going to happen again if it did happen again it would probably actually create legitimate outrage um, so it's not going to, but we do leave us then with um, with Bond has betted fifty seven women, so we're we I, unless he can unless he can bang twelve women in the next movie sixty nine seems just difficult to reach. Now who knows? Uh, it could happen. Maybe Gaspar Noe or someone will take off with it, uh, shoot some extra scenes. But I have my doubts. All we wow. need is one montage. All we need is one montage. Well, yeah, they could, they could just do like a, a Honor Majesty Secret Service and just have basically just up in a mountain yes. full of them. And that's how, I mean, that's how Lazenby managed to get in like three at least trysts in one movie. Yeah, just an institute of a dozen women. That's all it needs. And Bond needs to have sex with all of them. And this is definitely an appropriate thing we should be wishing for in the future <laughs> of films. 100%. Yeah. Totally normal yeah. conversation we're having here absolutely yeah. regular stuff yeah well uh yeah i have uh was was that it for your uh numbers Jack? Uh, yeah no absolutely let's get cool. let's get the box office does this thing as expensive as it looks like it was 
Yeah, well, you know, it only cost uh, uh, an indie budget amount of uh, $245 million. Pocket uh, change. That's just, that's just for the... I believe uh, making it change. one of the five most expensive films of all time. It's up there, yeah, for sure. Um, it's. I think this trail is only like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies for being very expensive, and I think most of those go to uh, Johnny Depp's Black Magic kits. But um, anyways, well, they yeah, solved. Two- they solved that problem. Looks like Johnny Depp's not going to be in another one of those. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it at my collar. Um, yeah. So two hundred forty-five million only five years ago. That's about two hundred sixty-nine million today. So that's nice. nice. Um, yeah, <laughs> nice. Uh, it, it only grossed two hundred million in the U.S. Um, seems pretty paltry for a, a blockbuster franchise blockbuster of this name. Um, crazy to think of two hundred million as not that big of a hit, but that's a two hundred nineteen million today. Uh, however, it did earn eight hundred eighty million worldwide, uh, which is roughly nine hundred sixty six million dollars today. So uh, not quite the billion dollar mark that Skyfall made. But uh, the second best or second highest grossing film, if you don't take inflation into account. And uh, yeah, as we mentioned earlier, the, it was nominated and won the Oscar for uh, Best Original Song, uh, Writings on the Wall by Sam Smith. So um, yeah, that's, uh, that's it for, for Spectre and uh, possibly this podcast for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, I do want to extend my thanks to everybody who's listened to us on this, this epic and long journey and thank all the previous guests that we have. Um, Alistair, you've been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, do you have anything that you want to plug at this time? Um, nothing specific, um, but you can mm. find me on Twitter at Yes, It's Alistair, where I will be tweeting nonsense, bad puns, links to articles, uh, my ongoing process, uh, likely in the next couple of weeks recovering from coronavirus um all, all the good stuff you can find on there yeah best of luck with that yeah, yeah. <laughs> speedy recovery and we'll know you i mean this this could be released posthum- posthumously god there's a word i can't say so oh, no. you know if this is my last media appearance i you know i'm glad i've gone out on a high an all-time high yeah <laughs> get that saxophone in there uh, all right, excellent. Uh, Jack, uh, where can the people find you, should you wish to be found? I can also be found on Twitter, at RealJackEason. So yeah, shoot, shoot me a message if you like. Tell me how I'm absolutely right to think Spectre is pretty good, and that Sam Smith might be a hobbit. Just let me know. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, I can be found on all things as at Jake Tropila, J-A-K-E-T-R-O-P-I-L-A. Uh, you can also hit us up at Optimism Vaccine or uh, at OptimismVaccine.com. Uh, we're actually now a Patreon-supported podcast uh, where we have bonus uh, content, including podcasts and writings made available there and only there. Uh, so please be sure to become a donor, and uh, we'll be sure to uh, uh, shout you out on our next podcast. Um, but yeah, as of now, this uh, this brings our For Your Ears Only podcast to a close we might be doing some uh, offshoots of uh, some other similar spy films uh, that Jack and I have discussed. So uh, hopefully we're, uh, we're down, but not out for too long. Uh, we want to keep the train rolling as we head to uh, No Time to Die, which uh, is, again, due out April next year. But uh, yeah, that, uh, that does it for this episode. Uh, the No Time to Die, For Your Ears Only podcast will return. 